going to look today at uh, the parable of uh, uh, the rich man and Lazarus. That text is uh, in the bulletin and also uh, up on uh, the screens behind me. Um, uh, this is uh, a great parable for us. And, uh, um, well, um, I'll let it speak for itself. Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. Uh, this is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Um, So I want to start out this morning just by uh, pointing something out that's worth pointing out that you probably will miss and overlook when we come at this. So we looked at the parable last week of the man who uh, whose ground produced a bumper crop and he uh, overfilled his barns, had to tear him down, build new barns, and then he died. Well, uh, this text uh, has death in it as well. Jesus talks about death all the time. All the time. Something that is uh, 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 something he's very aware of. And, 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 and it makes sense because culturally speaking, uh, people don't, didn't live as long as we live. Uh, and they died, typically, not in hospitals, but in people's houses or on the street right there. So it was something uh, that people were, were much more aware of than we are. Um, I included this week in the bulletin a, a letter that I came across. Uh, it's long. It goes over over to the next page. Sorry. A lot of words. A lot of toner. Um, and, and you should read it. Some of you will. And you'll be blessed, and some of you won't. And you'll still be blessed, just not as blessed as you would be if you read it. Um, because it speaks, I think, to us. Um, and let me help you uh, understand that. Uh, you're young, healthy, and talented. Thank God for that. You're driven and ambitious with big goals and a laser focus on what it will take to get you there, right? Um It's easy to think about your life as a ladder you're climbing rung by rung, finish school, pay off loans, find a spouse, have some kids, buy a home, then buy a better one and a better one and a better one and a vacation home. 
I added that. Get tenure, make partner, right? Retire. That's what I've been thinking about. Then you read over in the last uh, uh, paragraph, uh, which uh, this is what jumped out at me this week and made me think this was applicable for us. When your field of view is dominated by all the short-term possibilities, by all the what-ifs that may or may not be, your heart is like a greenhouse for stress and fear and envy and pride and a host of other motives that wear you down and steal your joy. That sounded like us. <laughs> a greenhouse. A greenhouse for stress and fear and envy and pride and distraction. Yeah, it's us. Meanwhile, the promises of Jesus sound like they're meant for someone else's life, right? Uh, the fact is, he doesn't offer you that next rung you're reaching for. So, well, that's what I came for today. <laughs> right? It's time to get up and walk out. If that's not what he's offering me, then what's the point? Right? Um, but when the certainty of death puts those short-term pers- uh, uh, possibilities in perspective, it clears a path for the promises of Jesus to take their proper place dominating your field of view for today and for tomorrow. Remember death so you can remember Jesus. Well, the the fact of the matter is the church, one of the reasons why I know that the church in America is sick is we've lost our mandate to prepare people for the inevitable and have decided that rather it's more important to intrigue them with the here and now. Um. One of the things that I do as I think about my future uh, is uh, I think uh, about once a week about retirement and am I preparing for retirement. And there's nothing wrong with preparing for retirement. You should. Because uh, one thing's certainly sure, you, one day you will uh, uh, die uh, and you're only temporarily able-bodied. Okay, And so uh, one of the things that you do when you think about that is, well, how long am I going to live? Well, did you know that there are actual tables called actuarial tables that can tell you how long you're going to live? So I looked them up and I was looking at it. Now, mine says I got 24 more years. Now, they're not taking into account all the bacon. So I, I, feel, I feel pretty certain that, you know, that uh, there's been some... Uh, a lifespan limiting behavior, let's say, that's going to carve off a few years off of that, right? So, so the so the fact is, uh, as you, as you think about that, and as you look at that, this this is something that is w- would be worth our time and energy to spend some time on. And Jesus understands that. That's why Jesus is so insistent about talking about this, and he puts. Uh, so much of his teaching in the context of, you know, this life is over in a flash. And really what ultimately matters is not how rich, how smart, how, how good uh, you think this life has been. What really matters is what comes next. Now, we live in light of that, and, 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 and we should live this life uh, uh, in, in light of the fact that Jesus is preparing an eternity for us. But the reality, the, the, the truth is, this is something that is worth spending our time and energy 
putting, putting things uh, uh, in perspective. I think it matters. It really does matter. And so it's worth, uh, it's worth thinking about. That's why Jesus talks about it uh, uh, as much as he does, because it is something that universally uh, is going to, to, well, we'll all experience it. So uh, in light of that, then let's look at this, um, uh, this, this parable. Just like last week's parable, the context of that parable is somebody in the crowd yelling out at Jesus for Jesus to uh, um, settle an inheritance dispute. This, par- this parable also comes in the context of argument and, and difficulty. Jesus has just finished saying to the crowd and to the, to the uh, Pharisees, you cannot serve God in money, Right? You can't serve God in money. Now, we hear that and we're like, yeah, 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 I agree with that. That's those those bad guys out there. You can't serve God in money. Yeah. So the problem with that is what happens here is he just says that. And then the very next verse is the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They made fun of him. Now, think about that for a minute. They're lovers of money. They made fun of him. What, what, how did they make fun of him? Wait, actually the text says they lifted their nose at him. Right? They ridiculed him. You know why they ridiculed him? Because they're thinking, well, if you tell people you can't serve God in money, he's not going very far. His, his message isn't going to get, get very far because, because we, we're, we want you to understand why, yes, you can. Sure, you can serve God in money. They go hand in hand. Yeah, that's, that's the good life. That's, that's, that's your best life now. Come on, let's do that. And we hear that and we think, well, oh, you know, that's, we align ourselves with Jesus in this when in fact we spend the vast amount of our time living like the Pharisees because we love money. <laughs> we love it, right? And there's nothing wrong with stewarding the things that God has given us yet, but the, the, the fact of the matter is as we hear this parable, as we look at this, we have to see, well, where do we fall in this? You know, where, where, do, we, where do we line up with this, right? So, uh, and, and Jesus recognizes this because he says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. In other words, what we look at is, you know, when we look around people, we, we, all, we we're, it's, it's very, uh, well, it's unlikely that you have looked at someone else and seen their suffering and seen their deprivation and seen the spiritual uh, uh, renewal that has come from that and said, God, I wish I suffered more. But it's not unusual for us to look at the guy with the new boat, the new house, the new car, the new vacation, the, the new uh, whatever it is, and we think, you know, I'd like, I'd like that, right? So, so we're those who justify ourselves before men, but God knows our hearts, right? So we think that what we are always about, what makes you important, what makes you valuable is your education, your reputation, your class, where you went to school, where you work, all of those sorts of things. When what God says is, no, I, I see your hearts. And so he says that for what is exalted among men, and this is something that we should probably ponder because what is it that we exalt? What is it that in our hearts we pursue? What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So whatever else might be true, you know, 
whenever there's something that's an abomination in the sight of God, God, God's being pretty clear he does not like that. And so I don't, I don't want that. I, I need to be very careful about what I give myself to that might be an abomination in the sight of God, right? So it's no wonder that the Pharisees made fun of Jesus because they're like, well, you're, you're picking at people about stuff that they don't want to be picked about, you know? And so in that context... He tells this parable. So let's, let's look, let's look at the, uh, let's look at the parable. So the first thing that we read here is, so Jesus tells them, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now one of the things that you have to see about this is, uh, that the every day, uh, modifies not only that he ate sumptuously every day, but he dressed this way every day. Okay? Both of, he, he, he does both of those things. And it's important to note that he wore purple every day. Now, if you had a little bit of money, you might buy some piece of clothing that had purple on it in, in, in this culture because the purple was a, it was a, purple dye was difficult to come by. It was expensive. So if you had one thing that you had purple, you might wear it to say to people, you know what, we're doing okay. But this guy wears purple all over every day. Okay? His, he wears the finest clothes every day. And, if uh, you were reading this in the context of the first century, you would laugh at this because it says fine linen. You know what the linen is? It's his underwear. So not only does he wear the best outer clothes, he has really fine underwear. Okay? <laughs> All right? Every day. Every day. He's dressed, he spends his time and his energy on looking really good. Whether he's wearing purple or whatever, whatever, you know, and what his undergarments equally as nice. So if you see him on the outside and you say, wow, that's a nice looking suit. Well, he could say you ought to see my underwear. Right. I mean, so so this is what matters to him. This is what sizes him up. You know, he's he's this kind of person. Right. Uh, and and every day, not only does he dress this way, but he eats sumptuously every day. And then and for him to eat sumptuously like this Every day, uh, uh, there's probably a party at his house every single day, right? He has, he has these brothers that he mentions. I mean, he's living the high life, right? And, and, and he is making sure that everybody knows that he's living the high life. Now, and it's important to note that it's not just a few days a week, but it's every day. We're going to come back to that because that's a very important issue here, every day. Now we read that right outside of his estate, at his gate was laid this man named Lazarus. Now that's important for us to understand because what we have to think about this is, is that there's this guy, Lazarus, who is so sick, so broken down, so poor that somebody has to pick him up and carry him to the richest guy in the village's gate so that he can be there in the hopes that some crumbs might fall off the table. He might get some leftovers that the rich guy might take uh, some pity upon him and care for him. He's so crippled. He's so sick. He's covered in sores. He can't walk. He has to be carried there. Right. And so it's a pretty dramatic uh, contrast uh, right here. Now, um, one of the things that you have to note about this is, is that his his name is Lazarus. Now, uh, we're, we, you hear that name Lazarus and you kind of go back, oh yeah, wasn't Lazarus the guy who died and Jesus came and raised from, from the dead? Yes, that, 
Lazarus is a very common name, but this is very uncommon. This is really uncommon. You need to think about this, Bible experts. Think about all the parables of Jesus, the sower, the prodigal son. Think about all of them. In all of the parables of Jesus, can you tell me one character who's named He's the only one. He's the only one. Now, it's important for us to to see this because uh, uh, that Jesus calls him that. Because uh, you know what Lazarus means? It means God is my help or the one God helps. Right? Uh, It comes from the, the, the better name, better name, the more formal name, Eliezer. Right? And Lazarus is kind of like calling Steve, Stevie. It's the kind of the diminutive of it, right? And so I, we don't know if this is really his name or if the people in the village were making fun of him as the poor, broken-down guy outside the gate. And they're like, oh, look at that. There's the guy God helps, right? Because he certainly could use it. We read this really odd thing, and, and this is something else that jumps out in this parable that's unusual, that Jesus gives us this picture that the dogs come and lick him. Now, that, that seems like such an unusual detail to include in the, in the parable, and so I'm like, wonder why that's in there. What, what, is, what, what is it about that that is what Jesus is trying to communicate? Well, there are some people that read that, and they think, well, immediately what is happening here is, is that he's so pitiful and he's so poor, he, he can't do anything and the dogs come and they lick his sores. There is a school of thought of people who are familiar with this culture who say, actually, uh, what's happening here is that uh, dogs lick you as a sign of affection and that their licking actually has some healing properties to it. I know that's gross. Uh, that there's a sense in which what what may be intended here by Jesus including this is, is that the dogs are kinder to him than the rich man. Maybe. I'm not going to stake my life on that, but I would I would say the fact that that's included here is something something worth kind of kind of thinking a little bit about. Um, so the the poor man died. And what we note about him is he's still being carried. Just as he was carried to the gate of the uh, 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 old, uh, uh, to the rich man's house, we read that the angels come and they carry him to heaven. And it's also to be noted, because we see this about the rich man, when he died, he gets buried. Lazarus probably does not get buried. He probably ends up in the garbage dump. But it doesn't matter because his spirit gets carried uh, to heaven, Right? Now, one of the things that you need to know about this is that at this point in, in telling the story, uh, I'm sure that some of the people who are around with Jesus think he's telling a joke. Uh, because just like in our culture, you know, we have jokes about, you know, the rabbi, the Presbyterian minister and and the Catholic priest or, you know, all die and they get to heaven. And St. Peter says to them, well, depending on your tradition in the Middle East, you might uh, you might have Mohammed there or you might have Moses there or you might uh, have 
Jesus there, right, as, as this. And so I'm sure that there were some people in the crowd thinking, oh, this is going to be a funny story. Well, it's not, is it? Jesus does that all the time. You know, tell me a funny story. Whoop, not so funny. So um, the rich man dies, and to his surprise, I'm sure, uh, finds himself uh, in torment. And I'm sure he is like, wait, 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 what happened here? You know, and he looks and as he looks, he he sees Lazarus there sitting in the banquet hall at the seat of honor next to Abraham. Now, one of the things that you have to note about this is we we read this and we think, well, 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 was it was this man's sin that that he was rich? Because, you know, we we have a we have this weird thing going on with money, don't we? On the one hand, we look at rich people and we despise them. And at the same time, we despise them and we despise riches. We, we, we want it. I'd love to be despised because <laughs> I'm rich. I, I think I could take that, right? And that, and that the way we kind of, we kind of think about that, right? So, so here he is. Uh, he, he is, uh, shocked and surprised that here he is in this terrible situation. Well, the, the, the reason why he's in the terrible situation, the clues are that are about the way he lived his life. Note that he lived sumptuously, he ate, he feasted every single day. Every day. Every day in a culture where the commandment of God is you take one day and you rest. Right? So so I, I'm certain that the rich man didn't prepare his his rich meals. I'm certain that he wasn't the one who did the cooking and the cleaning. And the preparing for that. So, so not only is he a Sabbath breaker, not only is he one who is showing that he despises the law of God by the fact that he is willing to, to go and to live this way seven days a week, but he's requiring the people who are employed by him to do the same thing. So that's one thing. But the other thing, so he's, you know, is, is he putting God uh, anywhere in kind of his sphere of the way he thinks about life? No. But secondly, he is also not loving his neighbor as himself, right? Because he forces his own workers to work seven days a week. And here's a poor guy sitting outside his gates that he won't even let him have the crumbs off of his table. So, so we have a window uh, into his heart. So he looks across and he sees Abraham and Lazarus lounging at the table. And he says, Father Abraham, uh, because I'm certain he's shocked that he's in the place that he's in because he thinks, you know what? I'm one of Abraham's children. I belong to him. I'm in the I'm I'm in the right race. I'm in the right place. And so why is it that I'm here? But nevertheless, he says, hey, Father Abraham. Now, one of the things to note about him is, is that he says, you know, tell Lazarus to come over here and give me a little bit of water because I'm burning up over here. And when that doesn't work, he says, well, you know, send Lazarus back uh, to tell my brothers so that they'll avoid the thing that I'm doing uh, that that happened to me. Another window into his heart. Right. He's very class conscious. You know, Abraham's in the same class. I'll talk to Abraham. I'm not even going to talk to Lazarus. Hey, Abraham, tell Lazarus what to do. Right. Not to mention the fact that he's telling Abraham what. He needs Lazarus to do, right? 
So there's a demandingness here that, hey, you know what? I Even though he's up there and I'm down here, hey, Abraham, do something about this. And so he, just like us, uh, uh, and, and the way in which we think about the way culture is divided, right? We, by education or or political uh, thoughts or what, whatever your, your, your thing is, we kind of line ourselves up that way and we don't really see the other people, the other folks that are around us. And so they simply become means to an end. Hey, tell, tell Lazarus, you know, he was poor, useless there laying by my gate. Get him uh, to do this, to do this for me. One of the things that is pretty profound about this is, is, uh, what uh, Abraham says uh, and the, what Lazarus says. Lazarus is silent. He never speaks. He never speaks in the whole parable. There is an indication, though, uh, that doesn't come through as clear in the ESV uh, as it might, and that's this. When he says uh, to, um, when the rich man says, now, you know, uh, uh, send him, send him across. Abraham says, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. Uh, there's a, a better way to translate would, would be, there's a great chasm fixed here so that, so that if someone wanted to come across to do this, they couldn't do it. There's an indication in that, maybe, that Lazarus was even willing to do that. That Lazarus was even willing to, to take a step from the, the table there with Abraham and go to uh, the rich man and give him some water. But he never says a word. He's silent. He bears all of this. Now, um, a couple of things for us to think about this. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I think the, the Pharisees made fun of Jesus is because they recognize that what he is saying is something that is so profound that it's going to be very difficult for people to believe. And the first thing is the deadliness of self-sufficiency. You see, that is, that is one of the things that we, I, I, I'm sure you and I uh, have this in common, that we spend the vast amount of our time seeking to be self-sufficient. And, and But see, the blessing that, that Lazarus has is he can't be self-sufficient. Lazarus knows that, that somebody has to pick him up and carry him, that whatever healing his sores are going to get are going to come from the dogs, and that he has no other place to look, no other hope, no other t- place to turn, except that God might be his helper. And so... So the, the fact is, the way we tend to think about this is, and, and we should ask the question when it comes to the issue of self-sufficiency is, who's the one that God helps? Who does God help? Well, God helps those who help themselves. That's right next to cleanliness is next to godliness. Right? Now, some of you are laughing, but some of you are like, well, why didn't he give the reference for that text? <laughs> right? God helps those who help themselves. You, you would say, oh, that's terrible. I, I have better theology than that. Then why do you live like it? Why do you live like that's the case? In other words, the way we tend to think about it is, you know, what I need Jesus to do is to fill in the gaps. 
What I need Jesus to do is to help me a little bit with this and help me a little bit with that. And what I need him to do is to make up those things where I'm not as talented, not as gifted, not as able. But the the clear witness of the scripture, the clear witness of the scripture, the clear witness of the scripture, the clear witness of the scripture is that you're dead. Dead. Not kind of dead, not partly dead, not mostly dead. You're dead. And and, and I can't think of anything that puts the lie to self-sufficiency than being dead. Because when you're dead, how are you going to get from one place to another? Somebody's got to pick you up and carry you. When you're dead, how are you going to eat? <laughs> when you're dead, what are you, how are you going to breathe? You can't. You're dead. We, the, 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 the lie of our flesh is the drive to self-sufficiency. And so God forbid that I be the one that he helps. Because I want his help to fill in the gaps and the missing pieces of my life. I want him to cover my shame. I want him, I want him to do this or to do that. But God forbid that the people in the city, that the people in the church, that the people in my family see me as the one who God helps. Because if God doesn't help me, there is no help. Right? I will not be needy. Right? And yet what we see here is, is that the very heart of God is so attracted to the one who sees and understands their need. It is compelling, so compelling uh, to the Lord that, that he sees us in our need and that Jesus Christ comes and fills that need by his atoning life and sacrifice for us. And that without that, without that, uh, we, we are in such a terrible state because we, we, we think ourselves, we believe ourselves, we believe the lie and the illusion that somehow or other we're self-sufficient until something happens and we're not anymore. And what a blessing it is to be in a place where we have no other hope, no other place to turn except to receive the help that Jesus Christ gives us because he is the only one who can help us. Who is the one who God helps? Yeah, think about that one. But the second one is another kind of rebuke to us as well, and that is the sufficiency of the witness of Scripture. There's, there's this thing at the end of the text that I think is, is pretty profound. He says, well, you know, send back somebody who was dead and now is alive, and and uh, that the, the, my, my brothers will believe. But Abraham says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, there's a confusion here about what the resurrection is. We, you know, we, we tend to think that the resurrection is you die and then you get raised up and you, you live this existence that's kind of like the existence you have now, only a little bit better. But, but the resurrection is... Not only that we are raised, but that the whole world is raised, that the whole universe is restored, that everything about life is changed and different as a result of that. So, so there's a misunderstanding here of what, you know, at least the Pharisees understood uh, the resurrection to be. But the other thing that's very telling about this is, is that the Bible that Moses has, the Bible that Jesus had, Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament, is enough. It's sufficient. 
I think most of us here today would say at least a large part of the Bible we're willing to believe. Now, most of us would say we believe the whole Bible, uh, but I would say that probably everyone who's here today, if you got here, maybe most of us would say there's there's something about it that's that's that I that I believe. So I I, I would I would believe that. The problem comes with not the truth of Scripture or the fact that it's believable, but is it enough? Is it enough? Don't we need something else? Don't don't we need to dress it up a little bit, make it a little cooler, make it a little fancier, make it a little flashier? Don't we need to add something to it? Or or don't we need Jesus to come and have private conversations with me regularly? You know, I mean, that's that's the favorite among evangelicals today is Jesus shows up and talks. Well, until your Jesus shows up and tells you to stop doing something or says you're really dumb for doing something or says you're going to die if you keep doing this, right? Then you're probably not having a conversation with the real Jesus. Okay. If he just comes and says, you know what? Everything's hunky-dory. Uh, if he never tells you a story about rich people dying, <laughs> and you might be the rich person in the story, you probably got the wrong Jesus, you know, probably, you know, thinking that we need that. The fact is, the witness of the Scripture, that Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose again, that he is the center of the Old Testament, that he is the purpose of what God has revealed to us, that's enough. That is sufficient for our salvation, and it is sufficient for us to figure out what life is supposed to look like and what death is supposed to look like and what eternity is supposed to look like. And so we don't, we don't need something else. We don't need to wish that Jesus would do something to uh, redeem our family members who are wandering. The witness of the scripture, the witness of the gospel is enough. Now, we, we should pray that that, that that witness gets in front of them, no doubt. But the fact of the matter is, it's enough. It is the means whereby God redeems men and women, boys and girls to himself. The clear teaching, the clear proclamation of uh, the good news. Um, It's worth your time and energy today uh, to spend a little time thinking about that. You know, about your own neediness and the sufficiency of what God has given you. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Before I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom." Let's use this prayer of confession uh, that's printed uh, in the bulletin. O Lord, we have not longed for your coming, 
nor for your kingdom as we ought. We have not denied ourselves taking up your cross following you. We have rebuffed you for your mercy, nor demonstrated it to others. Instead, clinging to the good things of this world and counting them as life, we have grown blind and callous to our neighbor. We have not cried out for justice, nor cared about those who are without Christ and without hope in this world. Lord, forgive us for our offenses and grant that by the power of your spirit, we might live in light of your coming again. Amen. Believer, hear the good news. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him.